Okay. All right. Well, everybody else can turn to Second Thessalonians. Uh, chapter 2 is where we're going to be. We'll only be in Thessalonians for a couple of weeks, I think. I know David last time said that like the next book was a secret, but I don't know why he did that. It's, it's Matthew. So <laughs> start, you know, start reading it. I know, I know. I didn't want to blow the surprise, but I want you guys to read it and start preparing your hearts for it. So, so Matthew is where we're going next. We're going to go into one of the gospels. Okay. In second Thessalonians, um, Paul has just finished explaining things that must happen before Christ's second coming and are being gathered to him. So apparently someone had tried to trick Uh, these Thessalonian Christians into believing that Jesus had already come and that they missed it. And I don't know if you can imagine what that would feel like, but if if somebody came in with some kind of a big declaration into our church this morning saying, hey, Jesus came back and he he didn't include you guys, that would create some instability for me. I would not like that one bit. So Paul tells them that the day of the Lord will not come unless the rebellion occurs and the lawless one is revealed. And then in verse 9, he kind of gives them a glimpse of of what we're going to look like. And so this is what Pastor David taught last time, but I want to read it just so that we can settle into our passage. Starting in verse 9, it says, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So he lets them know what will happen to those who refuse to believe. And now he's going to contrast that with those who, uh, with those who have believed what they can expect. And so, you know, it's like, this is what happens to them. And this is what happens to us. And, And he wants us to know this so that we have every reason to be confident and assured about what is in store for the Christian. God is not going to forget about us. He's not going to leave us behind. He's committed to us. And knowing this will enable us to enjoy stability when we face storms in life, when it'll help us to keep on keeping on. I love stability. It's one of my favorite things in all the world. Stability. It even sounds good saying it. Um, when I was growing up, my dad used to have this, this phrase he would use whenever he would build something. You know, he was a proud guy and he'd build this thing and he'd call you over and he'd say, come over here, check this out, feel this. That ain't going anywhere. That was his way of saying, like, this is built well. That's not going anywhere. And I heard that a lot growing up. There's something comforting about that idea that that's not going anywhere. And that's exactly what God has done for us through Christ. So the words from our passage this morning are meant to encourage us and exhort us to live in the security that the gospel provides for us. It will be like standing on solid ground. So... Second Thessalonians chapter two, starting in verse thirteen. Thir- thir- I can't talk. Thirteen. It says this, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this He called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. And now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, our father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. So Paul starts this section out with the word, but, 
which means he's contrasting it with what was previously said, which I, I just mentioned that. So describing what will happen to those who reject Christ and don't believe the truth and, and what will happen to those who do receive Jesus Christ as their Savior. And so these, these two sections are kind of meant to be looked at side by side. And what we see is that unbelievers are targeted by Satan. Believers, though, are targeted by God. Unbelievers are deceived. Believers are sanctified. They refuse the truth, but we hold fast to the truth. They believe what is false. We believe what is true. They are destroyed by the splendor of his coming, and we are glorified by the splendor of his coming. And then lastly, the unbeliever will face eternal condemnation, but the believer will face eternal comfort. And so these are the contrasts. Now, the previous passage tells us that the lawless one is going to target people to keep them from God. And I don't like the sound of that. That just that sounds really bad, but, but then Paul, that sounds terrifying, but Paul is going to say God's done the exact opposite for believers. He has targeted us to bring him to himself. So verse 13, that's why he starts out and says, but we ought always give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth. He tells them that they are loved by the Lord, that they were chosen by God as the first fruits and that they are sanctified by the Holy Spirit. That uh, the ESV cho- chose the word first fruits there, which, which can refer to the fact that these Thessalonians were the first to believe in Thessalonica. They were the first believers and there will be more to follow. But it, I think the better translation here is that God chose you from the beginning. And a lot of translations actually choose to, to say it that way. He's trying to let them know that from the very beginning, God had you in mind. And, and again, what we see in this, this verse is we see the Trinity in action. I love that you see the Lord doing something. You see the Father doing something. You see the Spirit doing something. They're all involved in securing our salvation. Just makes it sound even more stable, doesn't it? Uh, which I like. That, that should create that feeling of, yes, they're, they're, they're involved in this. And they know what's going on. So Paul says, knowing this causes him to always be thankful for them. And I can relate to this because I am filled with thankfulness whenever I hear about somebody being rescued by Jesus. Is that not true of you as well? Every time I hear a testimony, it, it does something to me. And I'm, I'm a crier by nature, so obviously it gets me that way. But it never gets old hearing about how somebody, a way that you know, when Christ came into somebody's life and rescued them. In fact, on our, on our third Thursdays, Kind of a little plug for it. That's what we do on third Thursdays now is we eat a meal together and then we have one of the guys in the church share their testimony. And, and every, every time it's wonderful. It never gets boring. It never gets old. I love to hear these stories. And that's basically what Paul's describing here is the testimony of somebody coming to Christ. It sounds remarkably similar to my story before Jesus intervened in my life. I was completely deceived about what was really happening and I happily believed the lies. I believed wrong things about myself and wrong things about God. I did that because it placed me on the throne of my life and, and kind of allowed me to reign supreme as king, which is what I wanted. I loved unrighteousness, and I took pleasure in the things that God calls sin. But God, I love when I see that phrase in the Bible, but God didn't lead me that way. But God opened my eyes and allowed me to see the truth. But God, who is rich in mercy, saved my soul. He pursued me. He sanctified me by his spirit. He set me apart as holy for salvation. And I'm just as thankful for that today as, as I am the day that it happened. Maybe more thankful for it because I understand more and more what, what, I've, you know, what he's done for me. God loves us. He chose us. He sanctified us. He saved us. And Paul wants us to have the security of knowing this. We are God's people. I don't know what that does for you, but 
to think about that, that he pursued you to be one of his. If you're a Christian, you belong to God. He wanted you. That doesn't ever get old, does it? That means that not only if he wants you, that means he'll preserve you no matter what comes your way. He will keep you. He's utterly faithful in this relationship. And that should result in eternal gratitude, especially when you understand what you've been saved from. That's the kind of question we should ask when we go through a passage like that. It says that they were saved. It's like, well, saved from what? Well, saved from everything he just talked about in the previous verses, namely him. (laughs) Saved from his wrath and condemnation that you justly deserve, that I justly deserve. We were saved from that. Well, how? How are they saved? That's another great question to ask because I think uh, we need to make sure we get this right. This is kind of an important, important thing to know. It's a great question to ask somebody who says they're a Christian. I I see this so often because simply just asking somebody if they're a Christian, if they believe in God, what are they going to say? Most likely. Yeah, sure. That's like, I know so many Christians who get excited and I don't mean to sound cynical, but they get very excited by this response. Yeah. I asked them if they were a Christian. They said they were, so they're, it's good. You know, they said they believed in God. So we're, we're all good. It's okay. Maybe, maybe they are, but that's like trying to find out if somebody's a foodie or a sports fanatic by saying, Hey, do you like to eat? Did you watch the Super Bowl? That doesn't mean that they're a foodie. If they say yes, of course they're going to say yes. It doesn't mean anything. Everybody kind of tunes into the Super Bowl. doesn't mean they're a sports fanatic. People that are foodies or sports fanatics, they're, they're, they're way in. They're all in with those things. And so somebody just saying they believe in God doesn't necessarily mean anything. So we need to ask more questions because how they answer will tell you what they're counting on for salvation. And this is critical. The Greek word here for saved is soteria, where we get our big theological word soteriology, which is the study of how someone is saved. And so I find that there are four great questions to ask to find out what someone's soteriology is. And and it's these. The first one is very simple. What is a Christian? If you're in a conversation with somebody, just ask them that. What is a Christian? How they answer that will tell you a lot. If they say somebody goes to church, I'd like to believe that, but not necessarily. If they say, you know, I mean, somebody who votes a certain way, well, I mean, it's sketchy. I mean, hopefully, but sketchy. If, if they say a follower of Christ, that's, that's getting, that's pretty good. There needs to be something in here about somebody who's kind of bowed the knee to Jesus is kind of what you want to see. Somebody who acknowledges that he's Lord. So, so that's the first one you ask. What is a Christian? The second one you ask is really telling. How do you become one? You're going to find out exactly what they believe when, when they answer this one. Because what a lot of people will say is by being a good person, right? Or they'll say something like, I've always been one. I was born one. And okay, that's not a thing. It's not, you, you know, my grandpa was a Christian. No, that's not how it works. So the way they answer this matters. Again, you want to hear something to the effect of, who Jesus is and what he's done and that I place my trust in the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus. I believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead and I confess that he is Lord. So that's how you become one. Important question. The next question is this, and it's a good one too, I think. Why would you become one? What they answer here is going to tell you some more, more information. If they say something like, well, what have I, you know, my life could use a little life enhancement. My life, maybe I could get some benefits. Maybe there's something about inviting him into my life that would just make everything work out better for me. That's what a lot of people will say. Or my back was against the wall and I didn't really know where else to turn. And I thought, well, why not just try, try Jesus? There used to be a bumper sticker that said that, like, try Jesus. Well, I mean, again, what you want to hear when you ask somebody why they would become a Christian is, is something to do with their sinfulness, their desperate need for him. The reason that I became a Christian is because I realized I was condemned 
rightly so, by my sin. And I knew that I couldn't do anything to save myself. And so I cried out to the one who could. And I asked him to forgive my sins and cleanse me from my unrighteousness. That's what you want to hear, something along those lines. And then if you've ever been in sales, you know that you need to close the deal. So the last question is, have you become one? Do you want to become one? So if you've made it through this far and they're still with you, ask them if they want to become a Christian. Do you want to bow before the Lord right now and receive him as your savior? Do you believe, you know, in these things? And so I'm going to start preaching the gospel to you guys because I get excited about it, but you want to close the deal. So ask the question. This passage tells us that we are saved through being set apart, sanctified by the spirit and through belief in the truth, the gospel. So this is important. Verse 14 goes on to say to this, speaking of salvation, he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is incredible to think about. Uh, Do you ever think about that word called? He called you. (laughs) That blows my mind. It just, you think about that. Hey, hey, you like me. Yeah. And you're, like looking for the other person because me? Yeah. Are you sure? Yeah, I'm sure. He called you. I just started watching The Chosen again. I don't know if you guys have seen that, but we watched it through the episodes that were free and then it started to cost money and I'm, I'm cheap. So I stopped, but then it was free again. So I started watching and we got to this episode where he calls Matthew, the tax collector, who they, they kind of portray him in this kind of odd way. But he had this moment where Jesus, nobody wants Matthew. Nobody, everybody hates Matthew. He's not, you know, who would want Matthew? And then there's this point where Jesus looks at him and calls him and says, you know, follow me. And he's me, me, you can't mean this. Yeah, you. That's amazing to me. And then you have to also see this, that it talks about how we're going to share in the glory of Christ. And you think, why would God allow sinners to share in the glory of his son? But, but it tells us that we don't deserve any credit for our salvation. It's all to his, his, his glory, his credit, but he lets us share in this glory in some way. And, and what that means is basically is not, it just means that we get to reflect his glory. And we see that sometimes now, every once in a while, you know, when a Christian's going through something, you kind of see the glory of Christ, him reflecting off of them. But this really is talking about the day of the Lord, when Jesus returns to be glorified in his saints and, and how cool that is to think about because these people that lived in, in this place, they, they lived in kind of an honor, shame culture. And as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, they were on the shame end of that deal. And, and Paul is letting them know that all of that's going to change when Jesus comes back. When he comes back, you will be honored at his return in this way because he is being honored. And so his people will be honored with him. That's kind of the glory that it's being talked about. And so the, the script will actually flip. Those who right now are being shamed will be honored and the other thing will be true as well. So... In all that we've looked at so far, notice that Paul starts out by focusing on what God did for them and not what they do for God. He wants to establish this before moving on to the next section. And this is really, really important. We always want to look at the indicatives before we look at the imperatives. And and I might've just lost some of you, so I'm going to explain that because that sounds like an English assignment, isn't it? Uh, Indicatives, this is who you are. Imperatives, this is what you do. Okay. If we get this backwards, we move away from Christianity because every other religion says, if you do all these things, then you can get this. You can become that or you can get this. Christianity says, no, all of this was done for you. God did it. Jesus said it is finished so that this can flow out of you because you're in Christ. Big difference in the two. And so Paul establishes who we are and how we became who we are. And now he's going to say in light of that, in light of who we are in Christ, this is what you should do. And so in verse 15, he says, so then... 
So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us. My chances of standing firm and holding on to things apart from Christ, lousy. That's why we need to get the indicative right first. This is something I can do because of Christ. So stand firm and hold to the traditions that were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Why is he telling them this? Well, if you remember back in, uh, the, earlier in the chapter in verse 2, he tells them not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So they got this news that, that shook them completely. It's like they got a Mike Tyson uppercut and they got the spaghetti legs in the ring. They can't, they can't, they're still wobbling from this. And so he's saying, guys, no, no, stand firm and hold on. Um, this is good, again, because it goes back to this thing I love in the in world, stability. Have you guys ever been on one of those airport trains that takes you between the terminals? Okay, I went on one once, and uh, you're standing there holding your bag, and they say something that's probably important over the, over the speaker, but my wife seems to think that I don't listen very well, and I don't usually agree with her, but case in point, I didn't really listen the first time. And what they're saying is the train's going to take off really fast, and you need to brace yourselves for this. So the very first time, I didn't really listen to it, and when it took off, I about ended up on the floor in somebody's lap because it really took off fast. So guess what happened the second time when they were going to go to the next terminal? Oh, I was ready. I had braced myself. I got into a, like a defensive stance and I'm holding onto the pole. I think I overprepared actually. I might've gone the other direction because I was so worried. But, but this idea of Paul saying, you guys need to do this, brace yourself and hold on. Well, the, the two obvious questions you should be asking right now are why and what? Why do I need to brace myself? And what am I supposed to hold on to? Well, I'm glad you asked. John Stott points out that there are three major things that threaten our stability. Oppositions, so things like difficulties and persecutions, false teaching, and temptations. So physical, intellectual, and moral attacks. Those are the banana peels that that we tend to slip on and, and land on the ground. They're common attacks that we can all expect will come our way as a Christian. And the aim of these attacks, it's kind of like a, a linebacker coming after a running back, on, you know, if, you, if you're a football fan, um, a real football fan, not just a poser like we talked about before. <laughs> just kidding. I mean, but the idea is this linebacker wants to hit that running back so hard that, that he dislodges, well, for us, it would be our faith and knocks us out of the game, sidelines us. That's really what every linebacker hopes to do when they're chasing, uh, you know, a linebacker down. And so the idea of these attacks is that they're really effective. They're really good ways of knocking Christians down and knocking them out of the game and and dislodging their faith. If you think about those who have fallen, one of these got to them. One of these things happened. So the first reason you need to brace yourself is because you're under attack. You actually have a linebacker chasing you. I know we don't think that way as Christians, but the Bible says that we're in a spiritual battle right now. Now, I know if I'm under attack or, you know, something's coming my way, I will do everything I can to protect myself, to brace myself, to armor up. And the good news is that if we're on God's team, he's provided really good equipment for us. And we read about that in Ephesians chapter 6. I know this is a familiar passage. Hopefully it is to all of you, but it ties in very well with what we're talking about. In verse 10 of chapter 6, Paul tells these people to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's the spiritual warfare. Therefore, 
Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take, take on the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end, keep alert with all perseverance. He has loaded us up with all the gear we need to stand against the battles. And I love that it starts out by telling us God provides the strength and God provides the armor because I ain't got neither one of those. Really, if it's, if it's up to me to, to provide those things, I'm in, in big trouble, but he's given us those. So he's given us everything we need to walk victoriously by standing firm on the strength of the gospel, trusting in who Jesus was, who he is, and what he's accomplished. This is the strong foundation that we are standing on. You know, I mean, somebody, if only someone would write a song about it, right? On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is, amen. So that's the stand firm part. Well, what about the hold to part? Well, Paul tells them to hold to taught traditions by spoken word or by letter, which we now know to be the Holy Scriptures, the Old and New Testament. So he, he calls them back to what he'd already told them, and he, and he tells them to remember that, to, to remember the truth that was spoken and to hold on. Well, why do we need to be told to hold on to it? Because it's so easy for us to let go of it. And I wish this weren't true, but... It is. That about sums up the job of a pastor most weeks. It seems like we continually point people to the truth and then urge them to hold on. You know, believe it, obey it. It's like you just kind of lead, leading them back to truth and like, here it is again. Believe it, hold on to it, obey it. We're all prone to wander away from truth. And the truths we, 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 we find in God's word, we have to continually be brought back to, and, and, which is good. Just like the Thessalonians, though, we often put more stock into other sources than we do into God's word. So they get this, this report, whatever it is, that Jesus has already come back, and they're like, oh, let's believe that report as opposed to what Paul's already told us. That's what they did. These sources that we, that we listen to, they don't offer us any hope. They lead us astray. They rob us of peace and joy. They give us the spaghetti legs. You know, we're wobbling around the ring. And yet those are what we keep going back to and keep listening to. Why do we do this? I mean, think about what we choose to rely on and how reliable it actually is. And why do we keep doing it? So for worldly wisdom, that's one that we rely on continually. Headlines, news stories, all these kinds of things, you know, whatever the, whatever the world's bringing out to us. And I get so frustrated because these things literally change from week to week. You can hear a headline that a week later, you'll hear something opposite. And, and whether it's about the war or politics or food, you know, eggs are bad for you. No, eggs are good for you now. It's like, oh, okay, coffee, bad for you. Oh, it's good for you. Whatever it is, it just changes and changes and changes. So that's one source that we look to. Another one that we look to is our circumstances. We look to our circumstances and think that'll be a good gauge for me to follow. Those change again. Day to day, my circumstances change. That You can't use that as a good gauge. And the other one that we go to all the time, probably the most, is our feelings, how we feel about it. It drives me crazy to say, well, I feel. That's what people say nowadays. I don't know if you listen, but there's been a shift from I think to I feel. 
I don't know what that's about, but it drives me crazy. It's like just, oh, you feel? Well, then it must be good. It must be true. My feelings change from hour to hour. I mean, literally, I can look out the window and I feel different now than I did when I got here. You know, it's like, I don't know what that is, but don't, your feelings are a lousy thing to trust in. We need to look to God's word because it never changes, right? Truth never changes. His word is truth. It doesn't change. That's what we, you know, believe that will have stability. In fact, Ephesians 4, Paul says in verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and by deceitful schemes. And, and, and that's what we're doing when we're, not, when we're not standing on the truth of God's word. The world's way of thinking will often be more desirable to us. For whatever reason, it feels better to our flesh. Uh, it seems wise to us at times. And it's always easier to go along with popular opinion. Well, if the masses believe it, let's just go with that. That's easier, right? It's harder to take a stand. The sad truth at the end of the day is we would rather listen to what the snake has to say than listen to what God has to say. And that's been from the start, from the very beginning. You see that happen. You see see the, the serpent deceiving Adam and Eve by just coming out with that little question. Did God really say? And that does something to us. Oh, wait a second. Did God really say? And we we do that today. I still do that. Surely God's word isn't relevant for today in our culture and time. Surely it's antiquated now. We don't have to listen to what it says. Surely it's old fashioned. You hear that kind of stuff all the time. And then you'll even hear Christians going, well, surely, surely, you know, when he says be sober minded, he doesn't really mean, surely when he says that he, you know, sexual sin is wrong, he doesn't, he doesn't actually mean, you know, he's not including are we, do we you know, stop trying to find a loophole to satisfy what you want to do? If God's word calls it sin, it's sin then and now. Right? And, and understand that the truth of God's word is good. It's not trying to keep you from something fun. It's trying to protect you. It's trying to keep you alive. It's trying to do something good for you. So hold on to it. It pleases God as well. So the way we combat opposition, false teaching and temptation is, is to hold fast to the timeless truths of God's word. And we refer to this as orthodoxy. That's one of those words that Christians hear and they go, that's a cold, you know, theological word. I, I don't, they don't like that word, but orthodoxy is so good. It's the idea that this is, there's a doctrine that the church has agreed upon. It's been tested and tried and proven, and it's been preserved and handed down from generation to generation. And there's safety in orthodoxy. There's an old saying that if it's new, it's not true. And if it's true, it's not new. So if somebody comes up with this great new idea about, you know, whatever it is, hey, maybe this isn't even something we have to worry about anymore. Maybe, maybe this was all wrong. And they start trying to take these bricks out of the wall. The, the wall comes down. So we have to protect orthodoxy. The church has continually been tempted with false teachings. I love this quote from Theodore Beza. He he aptly puts it this way. The church is an anvil which has worn out many a hammer. It's like you can just keep trying, but it ain't going anywhere. God said the gates of hell aren't going to prevail against it. So, you know, give it your best shot, but you're just going to be wearing out hammers on it. God's word will stand and praise God that he's preserved it for us and that we can hold fast to it and stand firm on the stability that it provides for us. Now, Paul ends this section with a prayer of hope for these weary Christians in verse 16. He says, now may the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, our father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. I love those two, those two things, eternal comfort and good hope or blessed hope is how we would maybe see it other places. 
um, that's pretty good. Think about those words for a while. I mean, the best thing the world can offer is maybe some, you know, I don't know, mediocre hope and, and some temporary comfort. Like, well, that's not too exciting, is it? But we get eternal comfort and, and a blessed hope. Now, you might be asking, well, how do I get some of this? I could use some of that eternal comfort and blessed hope about now. You know, how do I, how do I get my hands on that? Does God dispense it in some kind of a mystical way, a formulaic way that I need to, if I know the password or whatever, the open sesame kind of thing, or do I have to rub a lamp? And then, you know, that's the way we think. Well, look at verse 16 again. It says that it's already happened. It's already been given. It's written in the past tense. You have it now. I love that. It's a done deal. And much of this goes back to what he told them in the preceding verse. Sometimes all we can do is cling to what we know to be true. Just it's, it's there. Just believe it and cling to it. If we look for comfort, like I said, in what we feel or in our circumstances or whatever, we'll be like that ship just getting tossed to and fro by the waves. Circumstances, like I said, Paul, think about what the Thessalonians were going through. Paul in this prayer doesn't even pray for their circumstances. <laughs> it's like, Paul, you know what we're going through? Pray for that, man. Pray that the Lord would get me out of this predicament that I'm in. That's what I want. Paul to pray for. That's not what he prays for. He prays that their hearts would be established in the midst of what they're going through and that they would have hope and comfort during that. Not that God would beam them up and get them out of there, which is what I want, but that's not what he prays for. Eternal comfort and good hope are possible in the midst of any storm, depending on the quality of your anchor, right? All of my hope is anchored in Jesus. He you know, who he is and what he's done for me. That's my eternal comfort. He is my eternal comfort. He is my good hope. And it's completely secure. I love this. He, Jesus is out of reach of anything and everything. It's like he's on a shelf so high that no one can reach. And I, and I, I need to know that. Nothing can steal him from me. Nothing can remove me from his hand. And, and I love that it's not based on my performance. It's not based on my feelings. There are no circumstances that can change who Jesus is and what he's done, period. He chose me from the beginning. That's so important because you know what that tells me? He knew me. I mean, all of me, the good, the bad, and the ugly brain. He knew all of that. And he said, I, I, I'll still choose you. I'll call you still. He knew me from the beginning, full knowledge of who I am. And, and he set me apart as one who will be saved for his glory. You know, I saw a question that came across my feed this week on Facebook. Every once in a while, something good comes about down, you know, through, through the feed. And this was one of those things uh, from a guy named Jared Wilson that we really like. And he asked this question, how would you live today if you knew all your sins were forgiven, all your days were guided by a God of love and your future was secure? I'm going to read that again. How would you live today if you knew all your sins were forgiven, all your days were guided by a God of love and your future was secure? If you're a Christian, these things are true. They're true. How then shall we live? I thought about that. It's like, how would I live differently? Well, I would live without fear. I would be free from the cares of the world. I would live with stability and security. I would live gratefully and worshipfully. And I would probably not be so focused on myself. And that's really what he talks about. When we have God's comfort and hope, we can be free of this anxiety and despair that keeps our eyes on ourselves all the time. And we can start actually focusing on our God and on the people around us that we're called to love. Our hearts should be 
devoted then to good works and, and good words, which is what he says here. Those things should be spilling out of us. The more hard things we go through, the more that stuff should be coming out of us. I was thinking this is a bad analogy, but I couldn't help but think of a pinata. So, right? so, so and there, there's a sense where these Thessalonians were just, they were getting hit left and right. But what, what, what does Paul expect to be spilling out of them? Like candy for everyone. Comfort, hope should just be falling on the ground for people to grab hold of when they see what we're going through and the hope and the comfort we have in the midst of it. So I'm sorry to compare you to a pinata. No, that's, that's brutal, but, but it kind of worked in my weird little mind. There, there's a lot of weird stuff happening in our world today. And, and it's so easy to, when we focus on it, and, and, and really get myopic and start to just look at those things. We can just, it, it, for me, it, it creates despair, it creates disillusionment, and it creates instability. And these Thessalonian Christians had every reason to, to feel that way, and that's why Paul is trying to reorient them to something that is true and something that they can stand on firmly. So he, first he says, look back and remember all that God has done for you. And that's exactly what we need to do sometimes. Remember who God is and what he's done for sinners such as us. And then the next thing Paul does is he, he says, look forward. Look at what awaits you. Look what God has in store for you. And th- those two points on the, you know, kind of almost, th- those are like, you know, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't hike or do anything. It's probably true north, but that's two different things. So scratch that. That won't work at all. But, uh, but I love that. Look, look back to what God has done. Look forward to what he has in store for us. Um, even, even just think back on your life at all the ways uh, that God orchestrated your salvation you, you know the, how who did he bring in how what were the the different things that god had to do it's like that that when i think on that it just reminds me and he, he he did so much to save me it causes me to be more grateful more thankful and, and more comforted and to stand fast and stand firm in the darkest times you know i talked about that song that i love on christ the solid rock i stand uh, this is the other part of that song that i love these lyrics because there are times when when we get so disillusioned and filled with despair that we kind of forget to see Jesus, we forget to look for him. And this says, when darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds, where? Within the veil. And that's, that's that, that picture of Jesus ripping the veil from top to bottom and going into the Holy of Holies where we couldn't go. That's where my anchor holds and who Jesus is and what he's done for me. And that is solid ground. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. And that, that's, that's my anchor in all of this. And just like, you know, my dad would say, that ain't going anywhere, right? You know, it, it amazes me that Paul has just finished describing to these Christians undoubtedly the most gnarly time ever that ever will be in history. I mean, literally all hell is breaking loose in, in what he's just described prior to this section. But rather than break out into full panic mode, which is something my, my family has coined that phrase for me, I, I, Brent goes into full panic mode sometimes. It's, it's fun to watch, I've heard. Uh, but that's what I would think would be happening right now. And really what Paul's saying is there's no reason for, you know, don't panic. There's no need to panic right now. God is in control. And, and of course, there's me. Are you sure, Paul? Because everything that was just described there sounded worse than anything I've ever experienced. And it sounded really bad. And I panicked over much less than that. But, but he says, no, no, from the beginning to the glory, God controls it all from beginning to end. And he's got this. And so every time you start to, to feel wobbly, every time the ground underneath you starts to feel a little weird, or you start to see things that don't make sense, I would just encourage you to imagine your heavenly father calling you over, Hey, come here. Look at what I've done. Feel that. 
That ain't going anywhere. And that gives me hope. He's got it all finished for us. Praise God for that. Uh, Father, thank you that your word says in, in Isaiah 25, 1, O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. And Lord, we believe that. We believe that that we can look back and see what you've done for us and see what you have in store for us and know that even though the middle right now is a little weird at times, that we, we can look to those things and bank on, on who you are and what you've done. Thank you that you have saved sinners, that you have sent Jesus to be, um, to be our propitiation, to be the one that, that satisfies your wrath and that, that, that allows us to be forgiven and have a right standing before you. May we place all of our trust in that as our anchor and may you get the glory for it, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.